a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, welcome to the show. I'm glad you could join my little growing audience of wrong thinkers. By way of introduction, uh, because I know there are people who are kind of tuning in for the first time. I uh, just want to let you know, this is this is where I am coming from. I'm a pretty apolitical person, even though we talk about political issues from time to time. I'm more of a political agnostic than not, and this can be frustrating to some people. Uh, a lot of folks have been trained to depend on labels. This is what helps them get through the world. You know, I see that that's a cat, that's a car, that is a house, you know. only Only when it comes to labels... This is how you avoid having to actually have any conversations with people. You are a conservative. You are a neoliberal. You are, you know, whatever. Labels become a substitute for observation. And if you're brand new to the program, something you're going to find, and it may frustrate you. It don't, don't feel like this is being done deliberately, but for some people it's frustrating that they have a hard time putting a label on me. Well, wh- what exactly are you, Brian? What are you? Or... I hear some variant of, you don't even know what you are, which is kind of a roundabout way of saying, I can't figure out how to pigeonhole you, and it frustrates me. So here's what I'm going to suggest. Put aside the labels for a moment. Don't be so worried about, well, where exactly does this guy fall on the political spectrum? If I could be perfectly honest, I'm not sure myself. Other than, these are the things I stand for. I believe that we all have natural, God-given rights that the correct purpose of government is to protect and guarantee those rights. And starting from that premise, that's how I work out, is this something government should be due, not so much of should our side be doing this and denying it to the other side, or to what degree should government be doing this? I think there are some very uh, strict upper limits on power, and should be, and that problems can be solved in, in other areas of society besides government. So, with that in mind, welcome to the show. Our sponsors include Alta Bank Mortgage, also Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, and Monticello College. Happy to welcome them on as a new sponsor. So, I'm kind of into this whole free speech thing. You could probably guess why, but uh, I, I really love and revere free speech. And I have this sickening feeling that we're not moving in a direction where free speech is something that is is going to be further encouraged. Why? Well, let me just put it this way. Right now, there is the most deliberate attempt that I can ever recall seeing in my life. And, And I say this with the qualifier. I've been paying very close attention for at least the last 25 years. Maybe closer to 30 years. Really focusing and paying attention on what's going on. That doesn't mean that I've got all the answers, but it just means there was a point where I woke up and went, hey, some of what I'm being told by the news media is distorted or it's incomplete, and in some cases outright false. And so the biggest question I had to ask was, why would someone want to report things or slant things in a particular way? 
And you can see where this would lead to various conspiracies. Well, you see, the Bilderbergers, in conjunction with the Trilateral Commission, all sat down in a smoke-filled room, and they mapped out this is how it's going to be. I don't know that that's the case, but I do know this. The disconnect between what we are supposed to think and what really is, is getting wider. My wife expressed this to me last night. Just She said, I've, I've never seen a time where there has been such just blatant gaslighting, lying to our faces, manipulating us and trying to make us believe, oh, you didn't see that. This is the way it really is than what we're seeing right now. And you got to remember, she was there. She, she put up with me through my awakening phase, <laughs> through my yelling at the TV phase. That's not right. <laughs> through my starting a talk show phase and then all of, all of the uh, transition that's taken place since then. But yeah, we're headed in a weird direction. I mean, when's the last time you heard people assert the idea that there was one narrative? Uh, this, this thing about no one must be allowed to engage in election denialism. Remember when it used to be climate change denial? No one can deny that the climate is changing. And if they do, I don't know, it makes them some kind of a heretic. Well, apparently the same thing is now being applied to anyone who's, who questions whether or not the election of 2020 was really on the up and up. And by the way, just you know, for the sake of argument, you don't even have to be a Trump fan. You don't have to be a Trump supporter to have grave concerns about uh, an election that was so above board that you're not even allowed to question. <laughs> you, you may not even voice uh, the slightest hint that uh, maybe I don't agree with that. I mean, come on, serious media telling their hosts, you know, if you, if you bring up any questions about whether the election was stolen or whatever, you will be fired. Somebody's working very hard to try to keep us on the approved narrative, to keep us within the limits of approved opinion. Maybe it's a lot of someone's, but it kind of makes you wonder why. I saw this tweet from Oliver Darcy from CNN, and, and this is pretty chilling stuff. Oliver Darcy says, uh, actually, Oliver Darcy posted this. This is CNN talking about this. We're going to have to figure out how the OAN, I think that's One American News, and how to figure out the OAN and Newsmax problem. These companies have freedom of speech, but I'm not sure we need Verizon, AT&T, Comcast, and such bringing them into tens of millions of homes. Actually, that was Alex Stamos telling Brian Stelter on CNN these, these things. Got to figure out that OAN and Newsmax problem. Now, interesting, Oliver Darcy says, just a reminder, neither Verizon, AT&T, nor Comcast have answered any questions about why they beam channels like OAN and Newsmax into millions of homes. Do they have any second thoughts about distributing these channels, given their election denialism content? They won't say. <laughs> Crap. Uh, that sense of, uh, you know, they really are. They're, they're trying to, uh, MSM is, is really trying to clamp down and consolidate on what, what you may and may not believe. Okay, well, this is an interesting place to start. I, I got an article here from, uh, this is from offguardian.org. Kit Knightley is the author. MSM calls for new definition of free speech. Subheadline: new buzzwords in the mainstream media bubble spell trouble for those outside it. 
And all I'm going to ask you to consider as I share this with you is whatever sources you use for information, including me, are you getting a complete enough picture? Are you getting enough or are they being honest enough with you whether or not they're telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, or is there an agenda? And just for the record, yes, I have an agenda. My agenda is to create a cult of followers who think for themselves. I know it's a conundrum, but uh, I've had pretty good luck at doing this. And, and the greatest moment in the world is when people who say, yeah, I follow your show, stop being followers and become their own leaders. Because that's really what this is about. It's about creating more leaders uh, than, than creating new followers. So, to Kit Knightley's article... Kit Knightley says, Parts, or part of the main duty of Off Guardian is to troll through the masses of media output and try and pick up patterns. Now, sometimes the patterns are subtle, a gentle urging behind the paragraphs. Sometimes they're more like a sledgehammer to the face. Well, this has been Face Hammer Week. In fact, it's been Face Hammer Year. From Flatten the Curve to the New Normal to the Great Reset, <clears throat> Kit says it's not been hard to spot the messaging going on since the start of the pandemic. And that lack of disguise, that distinct lack of disguise, has carried over into other topics as well. He says, uh, we pointed out a few days ago the sudden overuse of the phrase domestic terrorism, preparing us for what is almost certainly going to be a truly horrendous piece of new legislation once Biden is in office. Well, the buzz phrase doing the rounds in the wake of Donald Trump being banned from the Internet is the new definition of free speech and variations on that theme. Firstly, and papers on both sides of the Atlantic want to be very clear about this, Donald Trump being banned simultaneously from every major social network is not in any way inhibiting his free speech. That probably makes you feel better, right? Indeed, none of the tens of thousands of people banned from Twitter at all have had their free speech infringed either. Neither have any of the proprietors or users of the Parler app, which the tech giants bullied out of existence. Free speech is totally intact, no matter how many people are banned or deplatformed, and the media agree on all that. Even the allegedly pro-free speech think tanks. They also agree, by the way, that maybe free speech shouldn't be. Maybe free speech is too dangerous in our modern era. Maybe it needs a new definition. Okay, we're going to explore that in some detail. Just the other side of these messages. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. We are talking about uh, the new era for free speech, or a new definition of free speech. Because apparently free speech is intact, even though uh, big tech has just silenced a very, very large portion of uh, its users. Well, you know, there's, there's, there's apparently a move afoot that we should be rethinking what free speech is about anyway. Reading an article here from Kit Knightley, this is from OffGuardian.org. And Kit talks about what Ian Dunt, writing in politics.co.uk, thinks about how it's time to have a grown-up debate about free speech. The Financial Times, by the way, agrees, asking about the limits of free speech in the Internet era. And, and by the way, there are links to each of these in the article, which you can find in the show notes at my website, thebrianhideshow.com. 
Com. Then you have Thomas Edsel in the New York Times wondering aloud if Trump's lies have made free speech a threat to democracy. Well, why didn't they say something? I mean, if we knew that somebody might lie, we would have outlawed free speech a long time ago. Right. The Conversation, a UK-based journal often at the cutting edge of truly terrifying ideas, has had three different articles about redefining or limiting free speech, all published within four days of each other. And then there's a free speech is not guaranteed if it harms each other, a drab piece of dishonest apologia, which argues Trump wasn't silenced because he could make a speech which the media would cover without also mentioning that the media has in mass literally refused to broadcast several of Trump's speeches in the last couple of months. The conclusion could have been written by an algorithm analyzing the Guardian's Twitter feed, quote, The suggestion Trump has been censored is simply wrong. It leads the public into believing that all free speech claims have equal merit. They do not. We must work to ensure harmful speech is regulated in order to ensure broad participation in the public discourse that is essential to our lives and to our democracy. End quote. And then there's free speech in America. Is the U.S. approach fit for purpose in the age of social media? A virtual carbon copy of the first, which states the attack on the Capitol exposed in stark terms the dangers of disinformation in the digital age. It provides an opportunity to reflect on the extent to which certain elements of America's free speech tradition may no longer be fit for purpose. And Kit says, and finally, my personal favorite, why free speech needs a new definition in the age of the Internet and Trump tweets, in which author Peter Ives warns of the weaponizing of free speech. Oh boy. And concludes, Trump's angry mob was not just incited by his single speech on January 6th, but had been fomenting for a long time online. The faith in reason held by Mill and Kant was premised on the printing press. Free speech should be re-examined in the context of the Internet and social media. Oh, my. By the way, a lot of evidence has emerged. This is just kind of a side note here, but a lot of evidence seems to be emerging that uh, what happened at the Capitol a couple of weeks ago was a pre-planned attack. Look at the people who are being rounded up, the people who are being arrested, and you're finding, hey, wait a minute, these people have, have roots in, in other misbehavior. Oh, and by the way, almost none of them, what you would legitimately call Trump supporters. So how could the president have riled up his base if this was a pre-planned attack? I don't know. We'll leave those mental gymnastics to those who are a little more flexible. Back to the article here. Peter Ives is being taken to task here by uh, Kit Knightley, who says Ives clearly thinks he's enlightened and liberal and educated. After all, he drops references to Kant and Mills. That's right, two famous philosophers. But he's really not. He's just an elitist arguing working class people are too dumb to be allowed to speak or even hear ideas that might get them all riled up and distract them from their menial labor. To season these stale ideas with a sprinkling of fear porn, NBC News is reporting the FBI didn't report their concerns over possible violence at the Capitol because they were worried about free speech. See, if the FBI hadn't been protecting people's free speech, that riot might not have happened. And on top of all that, there's the emotional manipulation angle where the authors pretend to be sad or exasperated or any of the emotions they used to have. 
In the Irish dependent, independent, rather, Emma Kelly says free speech doesn't include hate speech, although she's never clear, exactly clear what part of go home in peace love was hate speech, though. In the Hill, Joe Ferullo's almost in tears that the First Amendment has been ruined by the right-wing press continuously shouting fire in a crowded theater, citing the famous Oliver Wendell Holmes quote, which so many used to qualify the idea of free speech without realizing it hands over power to destroy it completely. Until you can show me the hard and fast legal definitions of shout, fire, crowded, and theater, this open-ended qualification is nothing but a blank canvas free to be interpreted as loosely or stringently as any lawmaker or judiciary feels is necessary. So as an example, Twitter is certainly bigger and more populated than a theater, and spreading anti-vaccination, anti-war, pro-Russia, COVID denial news, deleted as appropriate, is certainly going to cause more panic than one single building being on fire, isn't it? Now, Kit Knightley says it's this potential abuse of incredibly loose terminologies which will be used to redefine free speech. Offensive, misinformation, hate speech, and others will be repeated a lot. Expressions which have no solid definition under law and are already shown to mean nothing to the media talking heads who repeat them ad nauseum. If go home in peace and love can become inciting violence, absolutely everything can be made to mean absolutely anything. The more they redefine words, the further we move into an Orwellian world where all meaning is entirely lost. And what would our newly defined free speech really mean in such a world? This is pretty good stuff. I'll have a link to it in the show notes, but, uh, but there's a question you want to ask yourself. Does it matter? Does free speech really matter? I would answer not just yes, but I guess it matters. It's, it's a much bigger deal than we think. But then again, it's probably because that is my bread and butter. This is what I do. Without free speech, well, let's just say my life would be a whole lot more boring and less fulfilling at that. So where do you suppose we're going? Aaron White says, in, in his opinion, we are on the road to a dim dystopia. He says, what's happened with tech companies over the last several years have really challenged certain perceptions I've held on market, private businesses, and markets. On government, rather, private businesses and markets. He says, it really hit ahead with the election censoring the, of the New York Post and now with the coordinated attacks on Trump and Parler. These companies aren't selecting out the ultra-fringe to censor and limit. They are choo- choosing major portions of the population and a president who won the second most votes in history. They are coordinating to alienate and limit major portions of their customer base in order to limit their information and isolate them from other people. He says, I never thought I would see major private companies create an information cartel in order to control information within a population. Or if they did, it would have had to be due to government coercion. They do so while being transparently hypocritical in allowing major state actors to say and do horrible things and various leftists being horribly unabated. And they're doing so at the risk of destroying their own product and harming their market share. However, they believe they can get away with it because they coordinate with others, and they have incredible market share. He says, I don't specifically care about Trump. I'm worried about the mechanism that's been created that molds obedience. I'm worried about the tinderbox that's created when we put so many people outside of acceptability. I'm worried about how far this obedience mechanism will go. 
I'm worried how faceless corporations will now be picking which politicians, philosophers, pundits, and individuals you are allowed to listen to. And he says, I feel like I'm living through a major step on a road to a dim dystopia. So what can we do? We'll touch on that just the other side of these commercial messages. By the way, our show brought to you in part by Alta Bank. That is my friend John Staples. I would like you to reach out to him if you find yourself in need of a new home mortgage or want to refinance your existing mortgage. Please jump on it quickly, though. Interest rates are super low, and they're not going to stay there forever. That's Alta Bank. Check the show notes for contact details. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So I don't mean to leave you from the last segment feeling like uh, we're doomed. (laughs) That is never my goal. And I, I have to say this, in spite of all the stuff that's going on, as hard as things appear to be getting and as uncertain as things may be, I really believe that, uh, that some of our finest moments and finest hours are ahead of us. But I'm not going to pretend that it's, it's all sunshine and roses and you just have to whistle a happy tune and, you know, everything's going to magically uh, turn out. I think we have a lot of hard work ahead of us, but um, I believe that uh, the cause of freedom is not just a good idea. It's not just, you know, sound, you know, politics. I think that uh, I think it is a divine gift. And with that realization, when I when I approach it as such, when I approach it with the idea that uh, this is the greatest gift that my creator has ever given me. I don't know. I feel like I have a duty. I feel like I have a, a role to play to to do what I can to uphold it and that's what I intend to do. I'm guessing you may feel something similar or, you know, you may have a similar sentiment. Otherwise, you probably would not have stuck this far through, uh, you know, this much of the program. So I thank you for sticking around. Going back for a moment here to uh, Aaron White's comment here about uh, moving toward a dim dystopia. He says, I don't think I have an answer to this, this uh, dystopia where information is so tightly controlled and faceless corporations will now be picking which politicians, philosophers, pundits, and individuals we're allowed to listen to. He says, there is no government policy that wouldn't be throwing gas onto this garbage fire. So he doesn't have an answer for it. Maybe the free market will prevail. Maybe consumers will be the drivers of alternatives. But the direction of things really looks ugly. And Aaron White says, I know only that, he says, I know that the only reason my ideas are considered tolerable is because I have no influence. I felt that one. I'm not famous enough to be considered a threat, or I'm not credible enough or influential enough to be considered a threat. But that will change, I guess, for those who, who gain traction and who become more influential. Absolutely, they're going to be targeted for destruction. So be it. We should still absolutely use that influence as wisely as we can. Aaron White says, let's hope that the market will kill these major companies and we go back to our old internet, but I don't know how likely that is anytime soon. He says, I've been swayed that politics is downstream from culture. 
and I'm not comforted by the reality that cultural trends that have led to this moment are unlikely to be improved upon anytime soon. So he says, I'm not sure how we get out of this mess. Okay, I don't have an answer for that either. All I know is we've, uh, we've got our hands full, and somebody has to stand up. Now, that makes me want to shift into the topic of civil disobedience. And you maybe think, what, are you trying to incite us to do something here? Nope. <laughs> nope. But, uh, but I think that uh, some historical perspective on civil disobedience actually could be a very helpful thing for us. Because there are times where, where it is the right thing to do. And I can thank uh, our, our dear friend Lawrence W. Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education for compiling 11 of the most memorable acts of civil disobedience in history. Great moments in civil disobedience. Now he says, civil disobedience evokes a range of emotions when people hear the term. Some instinctively wince, regarding it as antisocial or subversive. Others, he says, like me, want to know more before we judge. What is prompting someone to engage in it? Who will be affected and how? What does the disobedient person hope to accomplish? Are there alternative actions that might be more effective? He says one of his earliest memories from childhood was an act of civil disobedience. His family resided near Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, about 11 miles from the Ohio border town of Negley. At the time, Pennsylvania prohibited the unauthorized introduction and sale of milk from Ohio. But he says, on many a Saturday in the late 50s and early 60s, my father and I would drive over to Negley and fill the back seat of our car with good, cheap milk. During the drive back home, he would caution me, keep it covered and don't say anything if the cops pull us over. Now, Larry Reed says, for me, milk smuggling was a thrill ride. It was downright exciting to evade a stupid law while keeping an eye out for a cop who might have nothing better to do than bust a couple of notorious dairy dealers. He says, I know my dad made a few bucks when he resold the milk to happy neighbors. We never had any regrets or pangs of conscience for committing this victimless crime. We were simply supporting a cause that even Abraham Lincoln may have endorsed when he said the best way to get a bad law repealed is to enforce it strictly. Now, Lawrence Reed says government officials hate civil disobedience because it's a disgruntled citizen's way of thumbing his nose. If we're unhappy with laws or policies that are stupid, destructive, corrupt, counterproductive, unconstitutional, or in other ways indefensible, they advise us to do the democratic thing, which means hope for the best in a future election, stand in line to be condescended to at some boring public hearing, or just shut up. He says, my go-to expert on the issue is not a politician or a preacher or an academic. It's Henry David Thoreau, who famously asked, must the citizen ever for a moment or in the least degree resign his conscience to the legislator? Why has every man a conscience then? I think that we should be men first and subjects afterward. To which Larry Reed says, if the choice is obedience or conscience, I try my best to pick conscience. Historically, civil disobedience, the refusal to comply with a law or command of a political authority, is exceedingly common. Sometimes it's quiet and largely unnoticeable. Other times it's boisterous and public. For an act to be one of civil disobedience, it must be accompanied by principled or philosophical objections to a law or command to exclude such acts as simple theft, fraud, and the like. Now, some political theorists argue that to qualify as civil disobedience... An act must be peaceful, 
Others allow for violence in their definition of the term. Revolutions are certainly acts of disobedience, though because they tend to be accompanied by violence, they aren't very civil. In any event, he says, the indefensible violence this past week in Washington should not blind us to the very honorable history of genuine civil disobedience and its loftier motivations. So he says, here's a short list of what I call short list rather of what I call great moments in civil disobedience. They're in no particular order other than chronological, and I wouldn't even claim that these are all among the top examples in history. They are at the least interesting food for thought. See how many of them you could endorse. And this is really a helpful exercise. Maybe, maybe the thing that uh, some of us need for a little shot of courage is to recognize some of the different circumstances in which other people chose to be civilly disobedient. First one he, uh, he gives is defying a pharaoh in ancient Egypt. Chapter 1 of the Old Testament's book of Exodus provides what is probably the oldest recorded incidence of civil disobedience. It dates back to about 3,500 years ago. Two midwives in Egypt named Shipra and Puah disobeyed an order from the pharaoh to kill all male Hebrew babies at birth. When they were called to account, they lied to cover their tracks. Now, the Exodus account says their defiance pleased God, who rewarded them for it. So anyone who says God is always on the side of the politicians must wrestle with that example as well as the next one. The next one is Sophocles' portrayal of Antigone. The playwright Sophocles wrote numerous literary tragedies, one of which, though fictional, tells the tale of Antigone. Creon, the king of Thebes, attends to prevent her from giving her brother Polynices a proper burial. Antigone declared her conscience to be more important than any royal decree. She was sentenced to death for her defiance, but never recanted. Number three, <clears throat> Judea and the slaughter of innocents. The book of Matthew in the New Testament reveals that when told that a Jewish Messiah had been born in Bethlehem, King Herod felt personally threatened. He ordered the Magi, the three visiting wise men, to go to the city, find the baby, and then report back to him. Well, as we all know, the Magi did indeed go to Bethlehem, where they presented Joseph, Mary, and the baby Jesus with gifts. But then they disobeyed Herod, Herod rather, and vanished. In a fit of anger, the king then ordered the execution of all male children under two years old in the vicinity of Bethlehem. If Joseph, Mary, and others who assisted them had not refused to comply, the story of Christianity would be quite different. Number four, Robert the Bruce defies a pope. In 1317, the pope demanded that King Robert of Scotland, better known as Robert the Bruce, embrace a truce with the English in the First War of Scottish Independence. For his refusal to follow the Pope's orders, Robert was excommunicated. Scottish nobles took their king's defiance to the next level in 1320 in a letter known as the Declaration of Arbroath. It was the first time in history that an organized group of people asserted it was the duty of a king to rule by the consent of the governed and the duty of the governed to get rid of him if he didn't. It is not for honors or glory or wealth that we fight, they declared, but for freedom alone which no, man, no good man gives up except with his life. Interesting. I got a few more I'm going to share with you. I hope you find them inspiring. Stick around. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So we're talking about civil disobedience. And that's a topic which I think may be on a lot of people's minds, maybe for the first time, as they're starting to weigh, well, what can I do? What can I do? And if you want to provide some friction against the wheel, civil disobedience is definitely one of those uh, options. But what's the right way to do it? When, when, how should you do it? Do you have to wait for permission? Okay, well, we'll talk maybe more about that in a few moments. Larry Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education has offered uh, 11 instances of the most memorable acts of civil disobedience. These, he says, don't worry, these are not the top acts, but just those that came to mind and some great historical perspective. I particularly love the biblical examples that he gives. Number five is Flushing's Stand for Quakers. Governor Peter Stuyvesant of the Dutch colonies in North America did not like Quakers. And in 1656, he commenced persecution of them and demanded local authorities participate. The following year, the citizens of Flushing, which is present-day Queens, New York City, drafted and signed a document known as the Flushing Remonstrance. Larry Reed says, As I recently wrote, these brave people essentially told Stuyvesant, You are commanding us to persecute Quakers. We will not. So take your intolerance and stick it where the sun doesn't shine. That's pretty strong language for late 1600s, by the way. The governor shut down the town council of Flushing and arrested some of the document signers, but it was eventually ordered by the Dutch West India Company to rescind his policy of persecution. Number six, Boston's smashing tea party. Nobody does tea parties like disgruntled colonists from Beantown. In 1773, the British Parliament conferred upon the British East India Company a commercial monopoly on the tea trade. That and taxation without representation provoked the Sons of Liberty to stage the famous Boston Tea Party, an event organized by Samuel Adams and other American patriots. Under the cover of night, colonials boarded a British ship and tossed its cargo of tea into Boston's harbor. Three years later, civil disobedience evolved into a declaration of independence and open warfare between Britain and its American colonies. Number seven, Robert Small's Daring Escape. Robert Smalls was born a slave in South Carolina in 1839. 23 years later, in a daring escape, he and other slave friends commandeered a Confederate transport ship in Charleston Harbor. They sailed it right past Confederate guns and into the embrace of the Union blockade. Now, Larry says, I share this example as emblematic of the historic civil disobedience of all runaway slaves as well as the courageous support they received from others who defied fugitive slave laws and provided them with life-saving assistance. The fight for the freedom of black Americans did not end with the Civil War. Let's not forget those who resisted Jim Crow laws, such as Rosa Parks. She committed civil disobedience when she refused to give up her bus seat in Montgomery, Alabama. Number eight, Everywhere USA. You're going to like this one. From 1920 to 1933, America engaged in the nationwide chaotic crusade against the importation, manufacture, transportation, and sale of alcoholic beverages, known as prohibition. People drank anyway. Women who previously almost never showed up in bars now guzzled in speakeasies and back alleys all over the country. Men built their own illegal stills and shot each other to gain market share. Crime rates soared. Juries often refused to convict obvious offenders, and at least one jury drank the evidence before declaring the accused to be innocent. 
When Woodrow Wilson departed the White House in January 1921, he took his stash of booze with him. His successor, Warren Hardin, brought another one in. By the time the whole thing was abolished, people really needed a good stiff drink they were imbibing all along. Number 9. Gandhi's Famous Salt March In British-ruled India, British companies enjoyed monopoly privileges. In 1882, the Salt Act forbade Indians from collecting or selling salt, a dietary staple. Resentment against this law and British rule in general eventually prompted Mohandas Gandhi's famous salt march in 1930. Huge numbers of Indians followed Gandhi in a peaceful protest for 240 miles to the Arabian Sea. More than 55,000 were arrested, but India eventually gained its independence in 1947. Number 10. This is possibly my favorite. Sophie and Hans Scholl's heroic stand. Sophie Scholl and her brother Hans were students at the University of Munich when at the height of Hitler's power in 1942, they formed the White Rose Movement. By the thousands, they printed and distributed leaflets denouncing Nazi rule and atrocities against Jews. They never engaged in violence as they worked to undermine support for the regime. They were eventually found out, arrested, put on show trial, and beheaded. Their story is sadly but beautifully recounted in the 2005 film Sophie Scholl, The Final Days. And I believe he's got a nice link there as well in this article, which you can find in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I don't want to get too wrapped around the axle on that one, but I will tell you, Sophie Scholl is a personal hero of mine. Just because she had that attitude of someone had to make a start. Someone had to speak up. And if you get the chance to watch the film Sophie Scholl, The Final Days, one of the remarkable things about that film is that it is word for word the dialogue between her and her Nazi interrogators. How do we know this? Well, let's just say that the Nazis kept really good records. And when you hear what she said and when you hear the kind of questions that were being thrown at her, as well as the opportunity to escape responsibility, it's very, very powerful. She, uh, she did the right thing. She knew it was going to uh, possibly cost her her life, and it did. But she said, I would do it again. Talk about an inspiring person. All right, last but not least, number 11, Eastern Europe's singing revolution. The Soviet Union's evil empire unraveled in the pivotal year of 1989, but leading up to it, citizens from the Baltic states to Romania made life miserable for communist overlords. In Estonia, the singing revolution put widespread civil disobedience to music. In Poland, a flourishing underground produced massive black markets until the communist regime declared the country ungovernable and scheduled free elections. When Romania's dictator Nicolae Ceausescu sent troops to arrest a pastor in Timisoara, unarmed congregants ringed the church to defend him. The soldiers refused to fire on them, and the Romanian revolution was underway. The dictator was dead within a month. Now, Larry Reed says, Dear reader, I ask you, where do you stand on each of these historic occasions of civil disobedience? He says, Personally, I can say I applaud every one of them wholeheartedly and without qualification. But he says, that as a former milk smuggler, maybe I'm biased. The sermons of the American colonial preacher, Reverend Jonathan Mayhew, are credited as the inspiration for the revolutionary motto, resistance to, tyrant, to, to, to tyrants rather is obedience to God. 
And he says, I would vote for Mayhew in an instant, twice, if I could. I like hearing about what people have done that, uh, that provides that, that boost of legitimacy for standing up for yourself. I've got a couple of other great essays. I think I may have to save them for the uh, second hour of the show. Paul Rosenberg has his excellent series on fallacies and how to learn how to sift truth from error. He's on number 12 now. This latest one covers the correlation implies causation fallacy. That's one that you're likely to encounter on just about a daily basis. And also, with all the craziness going on, it's been pretty easy to forget there's also a pandemic still going on. Wait, I guess it's not that hard to forget. Uh, But James Bovard explains how pandemic security theater is still going strong. And and the most disturbing part isn't that it's going on. It's that millions of Americans have seen enough merit in it that they've actually signed on as enforcers. So again, we'll cover those more in the the second hour. You can always check out the notes at the show notes, uh, in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Look, each one of us has a decision to make. And and you can try to hide from it, but I promise you, this is a decision that's going to come into the life of every man, every woman, every child. At some point, you are going to find yourself at a crossroads. Maybe you're there right now. But you have to decide, will I go along with the way that things are going? Will I, you know, vigorously support the way that things are going, will I just kind of hide back and, you know, try my best not to be noticed so that I don't draw, you know, undue attention to myself? Will I resist what's going on, even if it means it could cost me my good name, my employment, relationships, or more? I know we all like to think, well, you know, I really don't think that that it's ever going to come to that, but... uh, you know, look at where we were a year ago. Look at where we are now and tell me that, uh, that it's out of the realm of possibility. I don't know what that line in the sand is. That's something you get to choose for yourself. It's why you have your own conscience. But I am going to suggest that uh, you and your conscience need to be on speaking terms. You need to be having regular conversations. And you need to know what that line in the sand is. You need to figure it out quick. This is The Brian Hyde Show.